From the Asset Builder headquarters in Dallas, Texas, welcome to Keep It Simple, a show that discusses simple techniques and philosophies to help de-stressify investors around the world. I'm your host, Jared Herzog, and welcome to the show. Today, we're learning from our esteemed veteran registered investment advisor, Adam Morse, and our human economic database and fearless CIO, Michael French. And today, we're talking about our bear market. How does it compare to recessions in the past, and what does that mean for your investment now? And once again, ladies and gentlemen, we are conducting this interview over the phone. So if you hear some crackling and some noise, uh, that's why. Thank you so much for joining us today. Without further ado, let's get to the show. All right. Good afternoon, gentlemen. How are you guys doing today? How's a uh, hashtag quarantine life? <laughs> quarantine life is interesting. Um, you know, I don't think I have much to complain about given everything going on for a lot of people in our country and around the world. But uh, yeah, it's definitely a, a new experience. Certainly. I am a, I'm an introvert, so I am not complaining. <laughs> I'll be honest. <laughs> well, that's excellent. So we are in a bear market, and they, it's going to be someday declared a recession. But is this recession like all the other recessions? Man, that is a great question, Jared, um, <laughs> primarily because I told you how to ask the question. <laughs> um, it's a great question. And here's the answer, and it's really surprising um, to very few people in some ways. In some ways, it, it's a little bit enlightening. But this recession is vastly different because unlike virtually every other recession we've ever experienced as a country or that's been experienced around the world, this recession is not based on a lack of demand. It is based on an absolute interruption in supply. So when you think of our GDP as a country, uh, let's say that uh, we produce uh, $20 trillion of goods we have been told, stay home and do not provide service, do not produce goods, do not do things that are not essential for the functioning almost of human life. Um, so I travel to Dallas, I stay in a hotel room, and I have been told the job that you do does not actually require that you be in Dallas. You cannot go there. So that hotel room is not going to be occupied. Uh, you're not going to eat out. Uh, you're going to eat at home. Hope that everybody's discovered new recipes from all this. But in that way, it is extremely different than every other recession. The only other time in U.S. history where we have had demand-based uh, interruptions that have caused a recession have been during war times, when the U.S. government has said, instead of producing tires, and you can have as many tires as you want, we're going to need that rubber to supply tracks for tanks because we're at war. Um, and so it is vastly different from that perspective. Uh, in, in many it's, it's ways, it's strange, though, isn't it? Because it's I, I hear what you're saying, and it definitely is at least it definitely started supply based. But then, like, if you think about it from another perspective, it's kind of like this feedback loop. Right. Yeah. And, and correct me if I'm wrong, but because, you know, now it's almost like we have this mandated drop in demand. Right. Like the yes. fact that, you know, typically I would be, you know, I would provide demand for, you know, uh, food services and, yep. you know, like you said, hotel services. Now I, I can't do that. So yep. it initially was like sparked by a, definitely a, a shortage of supply. 
And that was the initial concern. And now what's going to happen? Yeah. Yep. So, and and here's, to Adam's point, here's what will determine how long the recession lasts ultimately, which I think is what we're going to get into, is does this spill over and become a recession like every other because there is a lack of demand. Now, for that to happen, what would have to occur is for people to not have money to spend. Right now, with the government stimulus, um, let's put this into perspective as a country, what the CARES Act has done as a percentage of GDP. We are spending at least $2.2 trillion, which is more than 10% of the U.S. GDP. So what we're essentially saying is we're going to pour that much money into the economy, borrowing against our future selves, I guess. And if you compared that to 2008, in 2008, we had a $787 billion stimulus, and that was worth 5.5% of our GDP at that time, which was about $14 trillion. So what that means is that we have literally said, our government has stepped in and said, hey, we're willing to make up for a 10% decline in GDP. Now, here's what's interesting. If you look and you say, well, how much is our GDP supposed to shrink by because of all of this? What's the worst number you've heard? 10% maybe? Mm-hmm. And, and so really, at this point, what we would be saying is whatever GDP that we're giving up, the government is going to make up. So technically, you would just have a wash. You would say, well, OK, then everything's going to go back to normal. But that's not true because we know that there are people who will lose jobs. Those jobs won't immediately be available. Those people may have to move. There will be dislocations. So then it becomes a question of if it lasts for a long time, we start to experience what uh, Adam is talking about here, where it becomes a demand issue, where people don't have paychecks, where people can't afford to go out and buy a new home. And then it becomes a much more serious issue. Right. No, I think you're absolutely right. Um, So I think, I mean, in conversations that I've had, it's... One thing they want to know is, you know, what are we dealing with? What is this? And they're trying to get some kind of context for, is this like things we've seen before? I think that's kind of the human reaction. I think people are more comfortable with something that even if it's uncomfortable, if they've dealt with it before, it gives them a sense of comfort because they know, you know, inherently I've survived that before. Right. Uh I think it's helpful to kind of look at, um, you know, how long is this going to take in different scenarios for people to be whole, right? For people to make back what they've lost. Now, the first assumption there is if you're a indexed investor, right? That implies some level of discipline. It implies a certain approach. One of the the core pieces of that approach is you're not going to panic sell, right? So I would disclaim these figures by saying, you know, if you have sold or if you have moved to cash, you know, over the last month, these figures you know, are going to vary uh, because in some ways you, you've compounded the problem. If you look mm-hmm. at, though, just what we would need, and this is only talking about U.S. markets, so we're going to use the S&P 500. Um, but looking at the beginning of the, the, you know, current bear market, what we would need the S&P to do moving forward um, to make your money back, right? So 
as an example, if the S&P annual return is 5% per year, you'll have your money back in 5.2 years. Okay. So that's, you know, not certainly out of the realm of possibility. Um, and just kind of, of sets the, the minimum bar 5.2 years is a long time. Uh, yeah. if we look at, you know, if we look back over the long-term average of the S and P it's about 9.8%. So if we just projected that forward and said, well, what if the S and P just does what it has done over the long, long history of the past 9.8%, you'll have your money back. You'll break even at about 2.7 years. And then we can kind of move up and extrapolate that out. Uh, look at 15% annual return. You're looking at 1.8 years. And then just kind of as a, to contextualize it, if you wanted to be whole by the end of this year, right? So year to date, end of 2020, you would be where you were at the beginning of the, of the bear market. We would need to have an annual return of 35%, right? So at 35% annualized return, you would have your money back in, you know, two thirds of a year, basically a little, a little above that. Right. So it just kind of helps contextualize, um, you know, Here's the damage that's been done, and here's what it's going to take to recover from that damage. You could also look at it from, you know, uh, a number of different perspectives. So, you know, some people like to look at, you know, GDP growth as a definition for recovery. When does our GDP get back to where it was? For us, and I think for listeners, it's probably easier just to look at, you know, market figures because market figures really are just a, a measure of GDP growth in a way. So uh, now – Another way you could look at it, though, and I think this is helpful, is to look at, you know, some actual past downturns, some real examples, as opposed to just, you know, projecting forward with hypothetical figures. What has the market actually done? Um, and I think we kind of talked about this. We looked at the three most, you know, um, uh, well-known. Yeah, the three most well-known and the three best that we could look at from a severity standpoint. You know, Black Monday, 87, most folks can remember that. Obviously, the 9-11 attacks, and then, of course, the financial crisis. Uh, yeah. Yeah, Michael Walker. Those are, those are good proxies because now each one of those, again, uh, there was a shock. Um, Black Monday, I, I, I went back and read just because historically, uh, Adam, you weren't born yet. Right. I was, <laughs> I, was I was but a, a sparkle in my father's you, eye. You were. <laughs> I was uh, I was a freshman in college. And so this is stuff that I'm like, I remember it. Um, I was a finance major. So I remember thinking I was cool because I read the Wall Street Journal and knew that something had happened. And so going back and reading it, it's 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 actually kind of interesting to see how much of that was caused by um, new things like programmed trading. Um, but. Uh, that was Black Monday cool. might actually be the best proxy, just given the the you know the sharp the severity. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it was just boom, and within two months you've had a thirty six percent decline. It took twenty two months to recover. Uh, so if it took twenty two months to recover, that's you know almost two years. If you if you use Adam's uh, math, if we had to get back to where we need to be in two years, we'd have to have about a twelve percent return this time. Um, if you go back and you look at nine eleven and what happened, there was about a thirty eight percent decline over the next three months. So that was you know about three years, and then it took 30, about th thirty three months. months. Sorry. Sorry, 33 months. What did I say? 33. Oh, yeah. Sorry. No, no, no. 33 months. So it was, it was a much more 
drawn out uh, decline. Yep. Um, one one of the things that's interesting is that there were periods like in 2002, where the the September of 2001, uh, 2002, where um, uh, we attribute, we say that basically there was this 33-month decline, but that actually started back in 99. It didn't actually right. start. It was it was the tech bubble that burst. And so the 9-11 right. uh, decline to peak was actually uh, much quicker, but the dot-com slash 9-11 to the bottom took 33 months, and then it took 48 months to recover from there. So that's now a four-year time period. Uh, in, in, in if, if we took, you know, about 7%, if we had a 7% return, uh, it would take us about four years to get out of this. And then the 2007-2008 financial crisis, you again had about uh, a 17-month period that it took uh, to drop 54%. And uh, that 54% decline, we uh, clawed our way back out of that again in 48 months. So um, what we're doing there is just contextualizing and saying, okay, when people ask, are we going to lose a decade? Are we going to have like a lost decade where we're just back to where we were? Uh, the answer is most likely no. Uh, right. That's with the information we have today. Now, one of the things that, uh, so, you know, the, the long periods of time here that we're looking at are about four years, uh, which means that you got back. Now, one of the things that's interesting, if you look at these graphs, is the the big gains uh, happen early in those recoveries. Yep. And so one of the things, Adam, that we've talked about is, okay, how do you talk to people and talk them through, well, I want to be safe. I, I literally can't sleep at night. So if you can't right. sleep at night, you need to de-risk. But if you de-risk, we want to have a plan so that mm -hmm. you're not de-risked forever and sitting in cash. And so, Adam, you, you had some thoughts yeah. around like taking a bucket, divide it into five parts. What do you do with that? Right. So, you know, it's one of the, the hardest things to do really as, you know, an advisor and, and anyone, you know, if you're someone that helps your parents with their money or grandparents, it's one of the hardest things to do because we can know uh, the math, you know, backwards and forwards. And we can know that, Waiting through the, the downturn is the best statistical chance you can give yourself. But again, we're dealing with human beings. We're not dealing with, you know, a software program. And it's really hard to follow a, a strict set of rules when human emotion gets involved and you're sitting across from someone that is obviously demonstrating real human emotion and real human, you know, um, anxiety. And so there are situations where the the trade-off is worth it right even if we know performance wise there's just a human component that overrides that and as long as you know the the trade-off is not damaging their survivability it's not damaging their ability to you know put food on the table sometimes that is the optimal strategy so if you do de-risk essentially what we mean by de-risk is liquidate equities go to something you know cash or a cash proxy either in part or in whole that can be okay, but then the risk you run is you, and, and this is what you see most often, is you you hold cash for too long, you you, you miss out because to Michael's point, um, and you know if we can link to some of these graphs, it'd be helpful to see. But how early on in the recovery 
the big up spikes are, right? So when you 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 hit that dip, you bounce and, and you bounce quite high initially. And so mm-hmm. if you're not in right at the right moment, right, you're gonna miss that. So we have right. to have a strategy that gets us from cash to participating in that recovery in a way that doesn't disrupt that discomfort that that people were you know, running from when they went to cash initially. And this is a perfect time that you can utilize dollar cost averaging. Um, you know, it gets talked about a lot. Um, it's a common thing that folks want to do when they have, you know, a big lump of capital, a big lump of cash, and they, they don't want to put it all into the market at one time. And I'm okay with that strategy in that scenario, but I like it a lot more here when it's a risk averse strategy. Now it's, it is risk averse, meaning it's not designed to optimize your return or maximize your return. It's designed to reduce your your risk and it will do that. But the idea is, let's say you have a million dollar portfolio and you went to cash, right? At some point over the last 30 days, mm-hmm. this would be a really good time to, to draw out on paper or talk to your advisor if you have one about a dollar cost averaging approach. And to make it really simple, what that would look like is basically, you know, splitting up that pie into, you know, you can do quarters, you can do fifths, I like fifths. Um, I think it's a nice, you know, round number and it, and it gives you a nice timeline, but then you would take those fifths. So you would take $200,000 increments allotments and you'd invest them over the next five quarters. All right. So essentially you're looking at one and a quarter years at the end of that point, you'll be back into your previous market position unless you've made risk adjustments, you know, as a result of whatever the downturn was. So you'll, but you'll be back fully invested uh, to your previous position at the end of that, those five quarters. The idea of that is you're not exposing yourself fully to risk so that if the market does continue to run down, you still have a healthy cash allocation. But over time, the more that you do have allocated into the market, if you look at the history we've just gone over, the higher the likelihood that you're capturing some of that that recovery, okay? So it's just a risk reduction to make sure you're not losing out on all the recovery on all of your assets. But on the flip side, you're also not exposing all of your assets to, you know, the downturn if it does continue to run out. And those that favor tips more and more in your favor, you know, the more time passes and the more of your money you have back in the market. So it's just one way that you can look at, you know, reducing your risk and, how to approach, you know, okay, you've gone to cash, you've scratched that itch, but, you know, for most people staying in cash for, you know, 10, 15 years simply isn't, isn't possible. It's not on the table. They'll, they'll run out of money too soon. So, um, and let me clarify this real quick. This should really only be something that I would say retirees or those very close to retirement should even be considering. If you're not close to retirement, the idea of moving to cash really shouldn't ever be coming to mind. Um, and if you've done that already, certainly you need to look at, you know, how do we, we overcome that. But if you haven't done that, let me just reiterate, if you're not close to retirement, please don't consider moving to cash right now. That's the last thing you want to do. Yeah. Right. And, and one of the things that's important about the timeline that Adam outlined, the year and a half or, you know, year yeah. and quarter to year and a half. One of the reasons that's important is it. This is a really complex math thing that we won't go into, but the market right now is pricing in and is reflecting a view that says GDP will approach previous levels in four to six quarters. And so what we would be doing uh, if we invested like that, if we split out over the next uh, five quarters, 
if you divided your money into fifths, is that you would be allowing for the fact that we probably have not seen the worst information. Markets will probably still go down some. Um, that's fine. Uh, we can continue to buy on the downside. Uh, if, To Adam's point, you don't want to go into cash if you're 40 years old, but maybe you want to de-risk because you, you have some view of like, man, I just can't sleep at night, whatever. Um, fine, move into something more conservative. But your long-term goal of getting back to where you are today needs to happen over the next year and a quarter, year and a half, year to year and a half, let's say. Um, because the markets are essentially at this point, and again, we believe markets are efficient, the markets are pricing in and saying, our view is that GDP a year and a half from now will look like GDP did at the beginning of 2020. So um, that may change over time. And, and, and if it does change over time, you want to work with your advisor to make sure that you're not uh, still following yesterday's news, like act on the right. new information you have. But the information we have today says markets expect, and, and people vote with their dollars, which is you know the mm -hmm. best way that you can see what they really think. And what people really believe is that in 18 months, the GDP will look like the GDP did on February 19th. So, um, right. Now, uh, is there any, sorry, uh, Adam, uh, is there any way to tell that we are now in recovery, you know, or can we only tell that in hindsight? In other words, you know what I'm saying? Yeah. Like, do we know yeah. that? So for, first of all, we're definitely not in recovery because the economy still shut down today. Uh, so 4 billion people around the world, Jared, have been told to stay home. Like, right. think That's about like, half of the world is being told, just stay home, please. Right. That's the best thing you can do. So, so uh, you can't possibly be in recovery yet. The other thing is, like, when you ask the question at the very beginning, are we in a recession? A recession is something that uh, they, people tend to believe that there's this thing like, well, if in two consecutive quarters, um, but it's actually something that's declared in arrears. Just they say, yeah. this is when the recession began. Likewise, they also say this is when the recovery, recovery began. Right. So the reason you want a dollar cost average in is because do you really want for them to tell you, hey, you should have been dollar cost averaging in six months <laughs> after you should have been dollar cost averaging in? No, you right. missed right. a, a, a significant gain at that point. So I, I think you know, it's a classic like market timing question, right? I yeah. Mean, yeah. People, will, people will reference the times they were right and, and trumpet them. And then they're going to yeah. never tell you about the eight other predictions they made that never happened, right? So yeah, right. I can guess today that we're in recovery, and I may or may not be right, but I, it really would be a misrepresentation to say anyone knows if we're in recovery or not. There's no, right. you know, um, technical definition for, you know, we are now in recovery. It's kind of hard to know because really, I mean, I think a rational definition of recovery is, you know, you 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 were made whole at least from a market standpoint. You've reached where it started. But you really don't know that until the day, guess what? You reach where you started. Yeah. And so, uh, I, you know, it, it's it's really hard to say. And, and that's exactly why that we talk, you know, about a strategy like dollar cost averaging, because we don't know. So we want to have a way that hedges on both sides, but gives us the part, the, the opportunity to participate whenever that recovery does occur. And we just know statistically it's likely to happen quick and it's likely to happen in bulk up front whenever it does start. I think like so a good example of this, Michael, we um, I think we talked about this. Um, but if you look at, you know, like I, I get 
texts and calls all the time from, you know, family and friends when all this stuff is going on. And I enjoy that because, you know, I like to get ideas from a lot of different people. But I think people are so anxious to see like positivity and to see that mm-hmm. we're through this. It's important to remember like what Michael just said, which is, well, the economy is still pretty much shut down. So the causal effect of what we're seeing in the market hasn't changed. So why would we expect the market to change? But then you see things like, um, you know, you, you have like fund companies that have billions of dollars, you know, invested in a handful of positions yeah. and they're mandated to follow an index. Right. So when, when these values are as volatile as they are, I know we're going to touch on, you know, what does volatility look like now? But when these big institutional trades are placed to rebalance or reconstitute their fund or, you know, you go um, buy up what they need to in pension plans. That can create like little false blips of, of price increases on a day. I think it was yep. maybe um, not last Monday, week, but the, a, a week ago. Yeah, like a week yeah. ago, Monday. Yeah. And you saw this big upsurge in the market. So, of course, all these texts and calls I get are like, hey, what do you think? Is the market, are we bouncing back? And it, it can be hopeful. And, and again, you can never say no with 100% certainty, but you need to be aware of what's going on because things like that can lead you to false conclusions, right? So, those trades are not being placed based on market sentiment. It's they have a mandate and they have right. to go place these trades whether they want to or not, whether they think it's quote unquote smart or not. And so just being aware of those types of things helps us understand are we in recovery or not? Well, don't just take, you know, green numbers or red numbers on your screen for telling you yes or no. No. And it, Adam, I think we talked about this uh, last week. It just Just as you ended the quarter, if you are – if your 401k uh, that you're invested in is supposed to be 60% equities, 40% fixed income, and your equities went from, let's say, $60 down to $30, and your fixed income you know, went from 40 up to 50 your fund manager, by law, if he had to quarterly rebalance, had to go in and buy equities. It didn't matter what his views were on equities. He had to make sure that your new portfolio, instead of looking like $30 versus 50, uh, he, he had to change that balance to go back to something more like if you got $80, what is that? Uh, 56 to uh, 34? 24. Yeah, uh, 24. Yeah, 24. He, he had to go in there and rebalance you. And so he was buying equities that whether he wanted them or not, he had to do that. That happened in variable annuities, uh, in some variable annuities that happened in 401ks, that happened in pension plans, just because people by law had to do that. So when people then start texting and saying, hey, we're out of the woods, well, you want to be out of the woods, but no, you're not out of the woods. And so processing through those things with somebody sometimes is helpful just because if you're just looking at numbers thinking, now we're good, Mm, no. It'd be nice if we were good, but we weren't. So. Yeah, and, and I mean, I think, and I know we, we don't want to go too long here, and I, I do want to touch on low interest rates because that's a bit of, you know, it's a bright spot in all this. How can we take advantage of times like this for ourselves and put us in a better position? Uh, but, you know, we're talking about volatility. It's just important to understand we are in volatile times. Um, yeah. Mm-hmm. This is a time where, you know, we've hit more limit up and limit down days over the last month than, than all other history combined, essentially. And limit up, limit yeah. down days are just a, a limit that are placed on futures trades, futures prices that says, well, if the price goes above this, trading is stopped for the day. Or if prices on mm-hmm. these futures go below this, 
creating a stop for the day. So it basically is just a way to protect against what they would say is is not equilibrium or or irrational irrational pricing yeah and so that's just another signal and you know you look at the vix the volatility index they're all very elevated and and that's just a way for us to know there's still a lot of volatility out there We're, we're not you know in recovery yet but it's another reason why this is not the time to be checking your balances every single day. Okay. Mm-hmm. And I know the tough thing is, and, and I'm sure Michael gets a lot of this. If you're an advisor, you know this, but when times are good, that's when people don't check their account balance. When times yeah. are bad like this, they're right. checking, you know, up to the minute. And that's the last thing you should be doing because you're going to be, you know, reinforcing that negativity, that, that negative outlook on the world essentially. And eventually, you know, a human can only, your psyche will only allow so much of that before you have to do something to to calm yourself, right? Unless you're a very, yeah. very disciplined investor or unless you're tied to an advisor that is really keeping you on the right path. So just remind yourself, what is all this noise? What does it mean? What are the fundamentals? What does history tell us the true story is? And try to avoid that up-to-the-minute approach of checking your account balances and getting the latest news because those aren't going to be positive sources. But negative inputs don't necessarily mean you're going to have a negative outcome. So just try to be disciplined when it comes to that. And and to be fair, Adam, even the positive news, I mean, like we just talked about, the positive news is just, it's more noise. Like people saying markets are up 10%, jump back in. If that was, if you're a day trader, fine, but you're not, most likely you're not. Uh, Hopefully if, if the people we're talking to aren't. And so Understanding these these daily moves aren't you know your biggest uh, shouldn't be your biggest motivator is really important. Um, I think one of the things that's really tough right now is everybody's being told to stay home, and uh, you know if you've got Netflix, if you've got I don't know Prime, if you have anything else you can watch besides CNBC or Bloomberg, (laughs) you're better off. Um, Right, for sure. And here's the other thing is, is if you have an advisor who's working with you, you should, you should know that that advisor is going to be reaching out when things actually, when, when you need to be making adjustments, that person should be reaching out to you. It shouldn't be, um, you know, you can call and, and have panic moments and talk and ask questions. That's, I mean, you're paying for that. So you should do that. But, but let that guy sweat this stuff because I've been, I mean, as much as I say, don't look at this every day, I look at this 17 times a day. It's, it's real. it's on my phone. It's on, it's at the forefront of my mind. Uh, I wake up in the middle of the night and I wonder what's happening in Asia and then what's happened in Europe. And so let me do that. If I'm in your advisor, you don't need to do that. And, and that's really our job. Hey, Adam, so what are your thoughts on interest rates oh, right now? I am so glad that you asked that, Jared. <laughs> I've been itching to talk about interest rates because I know that equity gets all the limelight. You never tune into a show and they're talking about you know bond yields and interest rates unless it's in regards to the Fed cutting interest rates to try to prop up equities. And I get all that. But this does represent a small silver lining for investors right, and for the consumer because – Low interest rates represent an opportunity. Uh, I mean, for for myself, I just refinanced my house. I actually closed later this afternoon. We're doing it social distance style. We're signing in my garage. <laughs> the guy's wearing a mask. My wife and I are wearing a mask. 
It's going to be weird. Awesome. But we're still taking advantage of it. And I would recommend to anybody out there to look at your situation and try to come up for air for just a second and see how you might be able to make this work for you. I mean, rates are literally at all time lows, so low that I have a number of friends in the mortgage industry and they're having to artificially increase their rates, not because the rates, the, the government fed rate dictates it, but because they're getting so much business that they can't, they can't service it. So they've just raised rates again. So if you can find someone out there that will work with you and if it represents value to you, right? And this would be something to talk to your advisor about, reach out to someone that is knowledgeable in these things, but it does represent opportunity. I just cut a, a whole percent and a half off of my mortgage rate. Now I'm going to keep making the same payment. So I'm going to be pouring, you know, hundreds of dollars a month that I've already kind of built my budget around. I'm already comfortable doing. It doesn't represent any discomfort, but now that's going straight to principal, right? And I've cut off an additional eight and a half years from the life of my mortgage, really at no cost, essentially, yep. just because the Fed decided to do that. There are opportunities like that littered throughout, right? You can look at debt consolidation if you have credit card debt. A lot of things that you can do that can just kind of try to make you know lemonade out of, out of the lemons we've kind of been handed here. And there's obviously a lot of other implications with low interest rates and bond yields and the way the Fed is buying up everything under the sun. But I just wanted to kind of try to give us a positive end note because, hey, that helps my family, right? That's a big deal to us. Um, yep. And it does give us the opportunity. You know, we've got three kids. Who knows? One of them might stub their toe or break a bone. And all of a sudden now, you know, we've cut our payment by 300. So one of those months, I can choose to keep that 300 bucks in my pocket instead of pouring it back into my mortgage if I need to. So, there is good things, and I know that you know cash flows are tight for a lot of people out there. So there are things we can do to try to make it better for ourselves. And you know, I would just encourage anybody listening to reach out to your advisor or even to us or to a family member that knows about this stuff uh, to try to educate yourself so that you can do what you can to kind of strengthen you, you and your family, um, you know, so that you come out of this on their side. You know, hopefully not just alive, but better off than you were. That's right. It's a good word, Adam. Awesome way to end, I'd say, unless you have anything yep. else to add. No, that's Michael. good. No, yeah. that's good. Um, and I know there's probably a lot of questions about the CARES Act. I think we're going to try to do an episode here shortly upcoming um, about that, including you know, just some of the specifics as it may relate to you and how you can take advantage of it. Um, but I know there's probably a lot of questions about it. We just want to do our due diligence and make sure we've digested it and really educated ourselves on it. And we'll be, we'll be coming back to you guys with some more information on that here shortly. Excellent. Perfect. All right, guys. Thank you so much for your time. Yep. We'll talk Thanks, again. Sir. Bye guys. Talk to you guys later. All right. Bye-bye. This podcast is intended for educational purposes only and is not to be construed as an offer, solicitation, recommendation, or endorsement of any particular security, product, or service. For more information, visit assetbuilder.com.